This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Studiosity's founder and president of Friends of Libraries Australia, Jack Goodman. Welcome. My guest today is Ant Bagshaw. And Ant is a senior advisor in LEK Consulting's Sydney office and a member of the firm's global education practice. Ant leads the practice's development in Australia and New Zealand and delivers strategic advice to universities on how to identify and see strategic opportunities across education, student experience, research, innovation, and social impact. Well, welcome, Ant. That's from your biography on LEK's website. Um, is that an accurate description of what you do, or would you like to add or modify any of that? Um, I think that's a great description of what I do in my day job uh, at LEK Consulting. And then in addition to those um, those features of my work, I also commentate on the higher education sector. I do a bit of teaching um, and yeah, I draw on my experience working. I started off working in universities and been in and around the sector for for a long time. So it all it all comes together. Well, the other thing you do, which you didn't mention, but uh, you have done, is you've written this book, uh, which you kindly uh, gave me a copy of called Higher Imagination: A Future for Universities. And I have to say, one of the more interesting reads uh, that I've uh, enjoyed in the last uh, few years, and I do. Uh, take the opportunity to read anybody who's brave enough to wade into the uh, politics of how universities work and how they're structured and what the economics and, and, and social purpose of universities uh, is. Um, so without me saying too much about it, um, how would you describe the, the, the you know, what, what drove you to write this book and, and what are you hoping to achieve from it? So, so my whole career is about a frustration with universities one way or another. And I was frustrated as a student activist, as a member of professional staff, as a working for a regulator, as a commentator on the sector. And in my writing, what I'm doing is expressing a frustration that I see universities can be better than they are. And I think they have huge resources capital resources, intellectual resources, mission, purpose. And I'd love to see those applied for, for optimal good. I want to, to maximize the potential of universities, which I think are really interesting and important as institutions. And then when I see in the literature, I see part of the literature that says, well, oh, let's give some good old days when only 10% of people went to university and there was... Um, abundant resource and you know give us give us give us that time or i see a university is going to hell the market's coming for them they're going to be completely disrupted out of existence um because they're just such, such dinosaurs and, I, and i'm trying to find some somewhere in between those two points the value of those institutions but also um the contemporary challenges that they face that's really interesting description and um and, and do you think part of your frustration comes from the fact that you worked you know in and around universities but never in the formal traditional role as a as a researcher or a or a or a educator or is that yeah, not so relevant i suppose i suppose it's interesting maybe i don't maybe i don't know the answer to that i don't know the counterfactual i think there's a um Universities need to serve a rich, uh, a rich diversity of people, as uh, their students, their professional staff, as well as as well as as well as academics, and you know the sort of the, the faculty needs to be satisfied, but but everyone else should be should find universities a valuable and successful place too. Um, so I don't I don't think I don't think having not been a faculty member that um, increases my frustration, but it's an interesting. I, it's not a question I thought about. It's an interesting one. Yeah, fair enough. Look, let, let's just to be really clear for, for listeners, Ant's perspective and his and his interest and the book is really about, um, is it fair to say, the, the Australian and, and UK sectors, really where your expertise lies? Um, yeah, or not? 
Yeah, you know, that, that's absolutely right. So I spent uh, my career in the UK and in Australia, and, I, and I've been really fortunate to work in other contexts too. I work a lot in Southeast Asia, I've done a bit of work in North America, but but I'd rather speak only to those sectors that I can with confidence say that I understand yeah. them and I know them well. And I think a reader, particularly a reader from New Zealand, Ireland, Canada, those systems would would find a lot of commonality and parallels. But equally, I don't want to overreach, um, given that I don't know even those systems as well as uh, as well as the UK and Australia. Sure, absolutely. So so let's get into this. Um, I mean, one of the things you say right at the start of the book is that um, that the current incentives are misaligned for delivery of consistently good outcomes. This is obviously in reference to universities. The basic economics of universities in the current system is to maximize the recruitment, retention, and fee levels of students and use any and all surplus to pay for research. So I don't think that's a particularly controversial statement, but, but it does have some big implications. Um, how is how, that have we gotten to this point? And is this something that uh, simply needs to be not just acknowledged, but pulled apart and re-engineered? And how would, and how would that happen? I want to start with an example. I've got a big bee in my bonnet about the Australian double degree. So uh, for listeners that, that might not be familiar, this is uh, two concurrent undergraduate awards and with a bit of overlapping credit so you don't have to do two, two full undergraduate degrees of a full credit but but you get two undergraduate awards at the end and it might take a, a, a sort of three and a half four year degree to, to five years would be would be pretty typical and I think they're designed exclusively for the benefit of universities that actually offering students additional undergraduate load is a way of uh, maximizing customer lifetime value. And I'd be very surprised if those students had different uh, intellectual or professional outcomes if they only had one undergraduate degree. And maybe they would spend that extra learning on, say, postgraduate specialization. And one of the one of the consequences of this, I think, is universities are failing then to build uh, interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary programs um, because they can um, simply offer students two of their existing uh, catalog. Okay, how would I? So, so that's so that's sort of milking students for more more, more fees, paying for a four or five year degree when really the traditional single degree would be sufficient. And, and I think that's right. And then on the counter argument would be, well, students want it, and they knowingly t take that option. So, what's the problem? Well, I think in this instance, that is a product which is not creating net good, and therefore. What am I interested in? How do how would how would we change the system so that the institution were incentivized to provide interesting inter interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary options? Um, were incentivized to get the student the learning outcomes they require in the minimum amount of time? Because if we think about the the investment on the students' part. Every year that they're additionally doing undergrad, they're trading off a year of their terminal earnings. That's a huge opportunity cost uh, right. of that additional year of undergraduate study, where, rather than getting them into the workplace. And as I say, I think my, my that's a really uh, sorry. That's a really interesting point, isn't it? And it's also a year of earnings early in their life, which potentially any savings has huge compounding impact. Uh, ab absolutely, and and I think the um, delaying that entry into the in, into the workforce is, um, I think, it's doing a disservice to to the students. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, I don't think that's just because I came from a, I came from a, a place where they do three year undergraduate, you know, and, and I, it's not that I don't believe in longer cycle undergraduate degrees. I think three years, four years is fine, but I think taking five years for undergrad seems excessive. And I think that would be deemed excessive in a, in the kind of global context. And how would I change this? Well, one of the questions would be, can we incentivize, and I think this is more, more a government choice than it is an institutional choice to say we're going to uh focus essentially on incentivizing efficiency of delivery how how do you get those learning outcomes delivered in the most efficient possible way and i think there's a um th there might be different ways different ways of doing that you could certainly look at a um overall funding envelope for a degree and then in a sense, it's for an institution to have some decisions about how much learning they 
supply for that. You could obviously need guardrails around the sort of minima. Um, but I think this is about, I, if, for me, this is a good example of where the incentives lie at the moment. And I think in this instance, it is a, it, it's a government action choice to, um, to, fo- to focus more on outcomes than inputs. Yeah, well, those 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 um, double degrees are interesting. You're right. I think that they're a little bit of a luxury item, and they may be for a certain demographic of student. Um, but one of the other things that you say early on in the book, and again, not probably too controversial, but a little more controversial than 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 the previous statement, is that the experience for many students, uh, and this is a quote from the book, particularly those studying at the highest prestige research intensive universities is often poor. There is often demonstrably little interest in students' educational experience because staff has such, have such strong incentives in the form of personal prestige progression and promotion to put discretionary effort into research. Now that, that ties right into the fundamental misaligned incentives that you're talking about. Can you talk a little bit about you know, exactly what the consequences are of that, that, that lack of focus on the student experience and, and what you see might be the way through it? So I would say there's two things at play here. In our current system, the more research and the better research an institution does, the higher prestige and therefore the greater advantage for the graduate from that university. And so there is, in fact, a rational alignment of incentives between for, for, for any given student to want the, the top faculty at their university to not spend any time teaching and to focus time on, the, uh, on, on research. However, that I think is 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 misunderstanding the full richness of the mission of the university, which is also to provide a high quality education. And and the reality is, although, you know, these are large institutions and it's a large sector and there's there's variability, most people would say, and most people do say, certainly in private, that the education is not good enough. And that's also borne out in the data that we would see in uh, the National Student Survey in um, in the UK or in the, in the quilt surveys, the Student Experience Survey in, in Australia. So, so I think there's some reasonable data to back up the, this assertion that the quality of education in those, those research intensives is not good enough. Um, I think the, the consequences are it's wasteful. It's wasteful of that time that students spend, in, uh, spend while studying in those universities. Um, I also think there's a bigger consequence here, which is the lack of recognition of high quality education outside of the high prestige research intensives. Because I think at the moment there is a ceiling on how far a more teaching focused university, there's a ceiling on how good in inverting commas it will be represented to the world because we don't have any reasonable information about how that's shared, about what actual quality is. And so when we have this quasi-market system where there's so little information for uh, there's a reasonable amount of information for students around uh, other students' perceptions of quality, but for employers, there's actually very little representation of the actual capability of what a graduate can do from any any institution. And what, and what they will often do is go by the same lazy assumptions that the these these notions of prestige are because oh well you must have been to you know large famous university of place name um and that therefore means you'll be good but actually it doesn't necessarily um mean that and it doesn't i think it's doing a disservice to the 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 student from a typically a newer university right so there's a real disconnect i think we're acknowledging between the status or prestige or the brand of universities and the quality of, uh, of, a, of a graduate simply because those universities are not investing anywhere near the resources uh, that they have into teaching and learning as they are into, into research. Plus, I think you could also say in the, U, in the U, in Australia anyway, because our universities are so large, there's just an enormous amount of variability. Um, some, some parts of the university may be doing a wonderful job teaching and others may be not so much. Um, so, but I, 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 think, I think it's probably fair to say that, that employers are more aware of this than, than we maybe give them credit for. And they do a lot of assessing of graduates who are applying for roles and, uh, and may uncover gaps in you know, degrees that way. 
But, but isn't that one of the threats to the future of higher education is actually if there isn't confidence in graduate capabilities, that actually that becomes um, a, a chipping away at the role of institutions in societies. Actually, I think you it, it would be better for the whole sector for institutions to be able to um, say with confidence that their graduates have particular attributes. Um, and I think to your comment, which I, I don't disagree with, but it but implies that that's that, that there's an erosion of confidence in in what a graduate can do. Well, yeah, and that goes to to sort of this fundamental premise in your your book, which is that universities have a, a tripartite mission, right? Um, you talk about their mission is threefold: to educate, to conduct research, and then also to engage, uh, you know, socially within their communities, um, and that this is what makes them unique institutions and special institutions that deserve the respect and the cherished place in our society. But perhaps they've got that balance between that tripartite mission. So I put that to you, I guess, as a first question, you know, how would you, how would you if, if that is the, the mission as you see it of universities, uh, should they be investing one third, one third, one third in that as a general rule of thumb, or should it vary depending on the institution? and? And, and what does it look like in reality right now? I think the answer has to be it depends. And it depends on where your institution is coming from and the, uh, its history and tradition. And, and actually, for the, for the sort of greater good of our society, we know about in the Australian context, um, you know, three quarters of research is done in, in, in probably about eight institutions, right? So, so actually, that's already weighted towards... Um, towards some institutions. Now, um, you know, do we think that those institutions might rebalance towards teaching? I think, I think there's definitely scope there and equally on the, on the impact side. I don't, I don't see, I don't see it as a third, a third, a third. In making the case for social impact there alongside the mission, the, the sort of the, the more traditionally received mission of education and research, I'm actually wanting to provoke and actually in the context of this erosion of public trust and the role of the university in in public life and, and and in society, and I think there's a greater case for the elevation of that part of the mission. Um, it, it, maybe it's a, a classic university answer to be forty forty twenty would be the uh, in just like, <laughs> a, like like a workload model um, yeah. might be your kind of optimal. Uh, optimal um, alignment of resources, but but like I say, I think it I think it varies depending on the on the mission and the time. But I, I suppose I'm I suppose I'm wanting that social impact piece to be more than more than a tokenistic two percent. Um, but I'd be I'd be surprised if it became a a one third. That's a that's a that's a fair point. I guess I guess what you're what we're getting at here, though, is that even at the research intensive universities, there is a misalignment or an overweighting at this point in terms of the, the return or the, the value or the importance they see of investing in research or running with this current business model, which is, you know, run to an extreme, as I guess you would probably say, um, is and, and that this is eroding public trust. Let's talk a little bit more about that public trust. What, what has, what, what's happened that's caused universities to sort of run, a, run afoul, not just of, you know, politicians, it seems, but, but of the, the, the public, what, what, why is that? So I think there's a broader trend about eroding trust in institutions. And I think you can see reason, you know, various surveys on that. Um, there is a, um, such a rich narrative in both the UK and Australia, which is a politically motivated one, but is an is an anti-university, anti-intellectual, anti-research, um, uh, um, and and the willingness of politicians to uh, to be critical, and and you know you would see this very much in the in the you know in other systems as well, and you know the US would, would be an extreme example here. Um, so I think that doesn't help that when politicians are bashing those public you know public purpose institutions um i would also say i think there's been a a limited confidence on the part of those universities for making their own case better and in more sophisticated ways and in and in better understanding the the public and the public perception um now that said 
I think there's also been a huge amount of good work done, and we see that in the context of, say, the civic university work that's happened in in the UK. You know, so so this is this is something that's been recognised, and there's a huge amount of work going. On. So I don't I don't want to be interpreted as um, as suggesting otherwise, but I still think there's more that that needs. I, th I think the evidence would show that there's more to be done, and we see that in there's been a blip in the increasing participation in the Australian context. Um, I'm I'm hoping that that is what I would describe as the weather, not climate, and that it is a that the long term trend remains increasing participation, and that's what the economy and and the Australian society needs. But it is a it is worrying that people are opting out, and and actually, if you look at who's opting out, there's actually a, there's a you know ever increasing gender divide in in who's going into higher education, particularly at the kind of school leaver age, and that is. Um, that's worrying. Um, as well as as well, I'm not giving you any kind of answer for why why this is the case, but I think it's a set of compounding factors that I don't think, as a whole sector, there's been a recognition and realization that really a lot of effort needs to go into restoring the position of universities. So, so let's get into these sort of three areas. But particularly, I'm interested in the the teaching and learning side and the research side. And you've got some interesting interesting perspective on on these uh, on, on 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 how to reform these parts of the universities on the teaching side you've got this idea that basically it's a it, it it's past time to take permission to create courses and degrees from faculties and departments and have all of that work done centrally by um in a way that is very much um in response to it seems that you know market needs, customer needs, customers being employers, those are the ultimate customers of the university's teaching product, which is the students. And by the way, you it's not me here. This is this is this is your your language. The students are are our customers or um and the, the degrees are or the are our products. Um and I think that's really interesting that you do use those sort of those very direct business terms. But can you talk a little bit about that that idea you have of of, of why you think it's necessary to make this change and it would be a, an enormous change. I don't think it's good enough that we accept massive variability in the in in our programs of study. And I think that is because there is now a much greater expectation that students will receive, well, that the product will be described to them, that they'll receive it, uh, as, you know, as described, um, and that it'll do what, It'll do what was described as well, but but in the sense that that previously there have been in many institutions this sense of well students will get what they're given um, we know best and is a um, I think quite a uh, it, that's an idea that's had its time and I think this is in the context of the increasing investment financial investment on the part of students we talked previously about the kind of time investment but the but the significant financial investment so i think there's a that has changed the terms of the relationship between the student and the university um why i think a product approach works is what you have is is expertise within the university to say okay what does the market need students and employers so what are, what are people demanding in terms of what they want to study and what um where will those graduates be valuable? And you say, how do we shape products that um, that fit those needs? And we do so in a way which is not leveling down. So it has to be intellectually challenging, enriching, um, pushing the boundaries of what the, because the other thing is, as we know, the student coming in doesn't necessarily know what they need. So we need to we need to reconcile and the university still has to have a really important role in in shaping that product and also let, let's also remember you know you said employers are the are, are customers well the student needs whatever education they're getting but let's say it's a bachelor's degree to last them a career not just a job and so actually we need to prepare them not just for 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 that first role they're going to go into but actually give them um a much broader set of skills that will last for a while yeah, that's interesting that you say that, the idea that the degree should last for a career. A lot of people are saying, oh, you know, really, this, you're going to be on a journey and and you're going to need to be coming back into education. You need to learn continuously. And I don't think we either of us would probably disagree with that either. But I think there's ideas that are consistent. Yeah, I agree. It, but, 
but it's the uh, but it's a good point that this isn't just a starter experience that's meant to get you through your first job or maybe your first five years of employment and and so i think the university can hold that in in mind can hold the complexity of well actually what do students want but what are they what will they benefit from most and what do employers need but actually what else what else is required so i think that that can all be held in that context of making really good quality product um but more fundamentally, it's about the economics here, which is to say the task of the university is to create value for students, to maximize the value that's created for students, but also to use that for generating revenue, be that from public or private sources, and then to redistribute that resource into their other investments in, in research particularly. And I think unless you say honestly, this is a corporate activity. And ultimately, from, from a faculty member's point of view, this is how your bills get paid, right? Right. This is, this, is our, this is our contract with you. We run these products. We're going to slot you in here. You've got expertise here. We want you to find uh, joy and, 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 and a rich experience in the teaching of whatever your, wherever your specialism is. But fundamentally, this is the economics of the institution. And, and so... So you, you've offered me a nice little opportunity to, to move on to this, this, this really big idea that sits in the middle of your book. And while you've got this sort of market-based approach and, and, and a very pragmatic you know, economic rationale for, for, for a lot of this book, um, which I think is really interesting and will raise a lot of um, interest in the sector, I have no doubt this is going to be a topic of conversation for the you know, right through 2024. Um, but right in the middle of it, you talk about needing to do something really fundamental at universities, which is to make them happier places. Um, and you use the term joy as in, there should be more joy at these institutions. Um, I read that as saying, many universities must be either not very joyful or potentially have pockets of joylessness. So what are you what are you getting at here? And what are you, what are you saying to universities when you when you when when you say they need more joy? So absolutely I am saying there are pockets of joylessness. And I have experienced that. And I know other I know other people experience that and it's not good enough. But actually I, I think I'm making a more essential point here, which is so I described to you education products and you know we can talk about re, you know redistributing that into resource and it's all about human capital development and that's all fine and we can do that in a joyless way if we want to we can do that in a in a relentless pursuit of of efficiency and i actually think that is misunderstanding the potential that the university has which actually is to be for each individual in the system, and I think that's for students, but particularly for staff, both both academic and professional, and and uh, and but also for you know for everyone on payroll, the university can and should be a place where you can find deep down in your soul a point of enrichment, and in a sense, it's part of the the proposition. I think the the if we go back to the sort of the the management jargon, the employee value proposition, I think for the university should be to say, this is a place where you can do your best work. What, whatever your role may be, you can do your best work here because it is a safe and positive and um, an environment which which recognizes that you are motivated by more than money. But actually it's an environment where you are motivated by intellectual enrichment, by exploration, by by recognition of the good work that you do. And I think that the, the marketized systems that we have, particularly those in the UK and in Australia, have eroded joy because they, we have been too focused on narrow metrics and on um, a uh, the sort of the, the factory factory style higher education, which has been less interested in the person and more interested in the operation of the production line. Um, and I think this is a, I suppose I'm trying to, to find this fine line between saying, I would like financially well-run institutions which are efficient in the right places and happily inefficient in the, wrong, in the other right places. Um, but in doing so, caring about the people that matter, because frankly, I think if you don't do that, 
we should all go home and we can try and meet our human capital and R&D and social impact needs through other means. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so I read this book and when I read about joy and I read about what you were trying to get at and, and I guess part of this would be some of the contentiousness that exists between the employment unions and the, and the, management and the fact that it takes years sometimes to negotiate agreements and they, you know, and there have been strikes sometimes at some of our biggest universities. And there's clearly a lot of friction and a lot of uh, mistrust. I read that joy as being a, um, you know, a, another term for organizational culture. Um, as in, if we can't, if we don't have a good culture, we can't all do our best work. Would that be an accurate reframing of of joy i'm very very happy with that interpretation and i want to add on that which is to say i think you can only get joy by a culture which supports it but my my contention is that joy is experienced at an individual level and that culture is that that corporate piece and so i suppose i'd i'd like to aim high for the idea that if i were to sample any individual <laughs> across the institution on any given day and just say, not, not in a sort of trite way, are you joyful today? But to say, within your work, is there the capacity for joy? Are you able, can you imagine a situation where sometime in your year, you would feel joyful about, about working here? And that I think is the, now I completely agree how, with your point about how do you get there? You get there with a culture that supports that. So it's a sort of, I think that there's, there's more, maybe I'm talking sort of inputs and, and, and outcomes. Yeah, and, and, and joy might be a very high bar, but satisfaction or, you know, happiness, enjoyment, or perhaps, but I think what you're talking about is if you did a pulse survey of your, of your, of your staff, and I'm guessing that every university does do this, just like almost every organization, every company does these on a regular basis, but they'd also be, um, you know, quite confidential and, and potentially, you know, concerning if they were, you know, to be revealed that maybe, as you say, that there are areas where there is not much joy. I was going to say, I was going to ask you another question here. Um, do, do universities have something to, to learn from really well-run other types of organizations, including businesses that maybe, do you think there's more joy in other sectors of the economy? To the first part of your question, yes, absolutely. I think universities can learn from lots of other, lots of other organizations. I suppose in the short answer is I'm not sure. Like I'm not I'm not sure whether elsewhere there are um I, I, I don't have a I don't have another organization that I'm looking to to say over here, well why why don't we adopt these practices? I think part of that is is the multiple mission of the institution and it's that that is as a distinctive mission. Um I think one of the things that you might see if we look at other sort of public purpose organizations, the sort of not direct government, but sort of quasi government, um, you know, although I don't know a lot about it, but you hear about say, say the ABC, it's in the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, doesn't strike me as a joyful place in terms of what I've heard from 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 colleagues who, who work there. So I think there is a challenge in, in, in these organizations which are, um, trying to do so much with with actually comparatively little resource um and also with such a plurality of mission and i think one of the things in 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 private sector if you are very profit focused um which most businesses are to more or lesser extent um that gives purity of mission right we, we, we can literally tot it up at the end of the year and see how well we did and how well we did relative to last year how we well we did relative to our competitors and there is a purity there now i'm not necessarily saying that that equals joy although i think people do select into the the industries that <laughs> that in which which align with that with incentives that work for them so i so i think i can imagine there being joy where right and 
And and and and you're right that there is. I, I wouldn't say that, that that profit is just the the, the motive. Profit is the outcome of a well-run organization that serves that that has a particular mission to solve a, a problem, and that 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 it's there is an economic rationale to what it does, and that is what is happening at Australia or British universities to a greater or lesser extent. And those that are making a loss are less successful in the operations of their organization than those that are making. A, a profit at that at that level, but that does that brings up another really interesting point, which is, is it is it are we at a point where these or universities where that mission is too complicated, where it is just really too hard to be joyful or excellent or doing the best you can at teaching and learning, and also at research, um, and with this civic engagement as well, if that's the twenty percent or whatever. It so has so to be. is that is that too hard to pull off? But I, I think my argument in the book is that I think I think there is a route to it being possible. And I think the route to it being possible is financial efficiency on the teaching side and thoughtful redistribution of that resource into, into research and impact. And I think that is the bit where I see within the universities that I know well, um, too great an inefficiency in that on the education side, which is not meeting students' expectations um, and the outcomes required. And I think that, that you can, you don't need, I don't think you need more resource for that. I think you need more thoughtful allocation of resource to get that those products working well. I, I was going to say, because, you know, efficiency, the, 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 the place where most people go immediately with efficiency as well, can we teach more people with fewer staff? Can we have more students in a lecture hall or have them in a larger zoom um when you talk about efficiency how do you square that with quality i don't think those have to be inconsistent um i think there's a question about how you structure your educational program such that the bits that can be taught um in terms of the the effectiveness of that teaching through large-scale efficient means i don't i don't i don't see a problem with that but i don't think that's inconsistent I, I wouldn't say if I were designing an education product that that would be the only method I would use, but I would use a combination of um, of high intensity, you know, more expensive activities where there's high value for for the student, and I would think about that the allocation of my resource in in that way. Um, but I don't think um, I don't think the answer is that. I, uh, so, there is one version of this where you say the very best is, you know, one-to-one -one teaching and, and that that's what we're aiming for. And everything below that is, is just percentage points off, off that goal. I think that's not fully understanding or describing the, the potential of learning. Um, so, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm offering, uh, I think in the design of the product, you need to think about all of those learning options and how we achieve the learning outcomes efficiently. I, I want to get into two more topics. I know we're, we're running a little long here, but that's okay. I think this is, this is worth digging into. Um, on the research side, you've got a very um, market-based approach to the research side of universities as well, at least the way I read it, maybe I'm, maybe I'm misinterpreting it or correct me, please. Um, but the universities really should be looking, almost taking a, a sort of um, a sort of investment portfolio approach and, and really looking at all the research they do, acknowledging that some is more impactful, more useful, more relevant than others, and putting the funds that they have, backing their winners and cutting their losers. Is that roughly correct? I mean, I think that's roughly correct. So I, I think what I'm making the case for is that at the moment we have a haphazard allocation of, of research investment. So, so um, because we're investing in people that are aligned to departments, that might be aligned to teaching load, and and there's a sort of generalized sense of well, okay, here's a here's a bucket of investment in research, and I think particularly it's you know the biggest investment in research is that time within a particularly in a say a forty forty twenty model that that forty percent. Uh, on research is, um, is is a big investment. If we were to think differently and say, as a whole institution, we're going to make those investments more thoughtfully, 
you then have to say, well, okay, how would we know? How would we know what to invest in? So first off, we accept there's risk because if there's no risk in research, it's not research, right? Like it's, you know, it has to, to be uncertain. Yeah, absolutely. And so we say, let's try and understand what a reasonable horizon would be for investment in research. And when then what's right. Do we need a reasonable critical mass? So we're going to have a geography department. Actually, geography departments of two aren't, are, you know, if we look at global examples, they're not very, uh, they don't produce good research and they're obviously at risk of losing people. So actually, we're going to say, you know what, well, actually, we need 10 geographers to be to be at our minimum level. And in the case of geography research, you know what, we, we're going to review this every seven years. You know, we're going to we're going to take a take a, a have a time horizon. And it doesn't mean that everyone is on a seven year contract and loses their job and so on. But but we're going to make a um, thoughtful and considered investment in in an area of research over a reasonable period of time. Um, and in doing so, we're, that we're going to both engage with those researchers in helping them make the case for why that investment is is required, but also to try and understand what what good would look like so and 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 like i say recognizing the risk uh, in this area and it might be that i'm completely wrong and that actually we don't need seven years we need 30 years right you know like like you could you could you could have a very long um horizon so i don't but but it might be two Absolutely, absolutely, it might be, but but I think we're talking years rather than right months. Right, right. Well, sure. Um, in the current situation, do we do, do, would you say that we have have you know the incentives are are such that universities are largely investing in, in research that they think is going to lead to more citations that lead to better rankings and and that that's impacting what they're what they're investing their their research dollars in? Is that is that actually happening now? I think there is a, a reasonable amount of steering of steering of research effort, but I just just like I said in the in the context of productizing education, there's a bit of that at the moment, but I think we can dial that up. And equally, this sort of targeted investment in research, I think, could go a lot further. And I also think it actually speaks to the the case of universities in society, which is also if we were to support researchers to make the case for investment in their research. That would also help for articulating why their research is important to all sorts of audiences. And that, I think, would initially be seen as enormously threatening and would be rejected as a as a totally ridiculous premise in, in a university. But I ask people to think slightly more, you know, what's the second thought there, which say, well, OK, what if we had to make the case? What would we say? And how would we, particularly if you imagine the sort of the group that is going to make this decision, it's going to be multidisciplinary, right? Because right. you can't you can't have all those geographers sitting on a panel judging whether to invest in art history and chemistry and so so we're going to have a, a multidisciplinary audience to make the case to, but they're not going to necessarily understand the nuances of why our particular subspecialism is important in the context of um, wherever we're working. So it might be to our city to our country uh, maybe that we have a particularly important role to play globally in 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 our niche well wouldn't it be amazing to tell those stories and that would be an important important part of making the case for research yeah interesting all right look i think we're going to have to address here the end of this conversation that you know the elephant in the room which is australia anyway and um is in the you know, in the middle of a, what's going to be a multi-year um, reform process of its university sector. Um, and, you know, I, I gather from, from your perspective, uh, this is a case where, you know, universities, you say right at the beginning of the book, have been expecting too much from governments, too many rules or waiting, waiting to be told, I guess, what, what, what the rules are, and then sort of following a playbook that, that ends up resulting, I guess, as, 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 you know, Glenn Davis wrote uh, now five or six years ago in, in his book, you know, with, with sort of the 40 copies of a very similar university structure. Um, what, what can, what's going to change? What, what's it going to take to change? I guess is my question. What, you know, there's a lot of big ideas in here, obviously. And this is really sort of throwing down a gauntlet to the, to the sector to, to sort of think 
bravely and to be ambitious. Um, but that's not how very large organizations move and adapt and, 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 and change. And what we have now is very, very large. Even the smallest of our public universities are very, very large. How, how, how should they go about responding to whatever this, this review process, this accord process ends up leading them? And, uh, and how do they embrace some kind of uh, future looking you know, change, which isn't just you know, micro incrementalism, which I think is what you would sort of have expected? In the Australian context, there is a real gap in in a discussion of the sort of in, in the intellectual discussion of the role of the university. And the accord process could have been uh, a place for that, but it 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 hasn't been. And this is where I actually think, and I, I start the book with this uh, chapter on how how interesting universities are as autonomous institutions or, or quasi-autonomous and that they have opportunities because of that and and, and universities are unusual you, we talked earlier about comparing them to other organizations well universities because they have research and because they are thoughtful intellectual organizations they actually have a different level of capacity for for both self-interrogation but also sector impact i feel strongly that in the absence of a guiding hand for the future of the sector externally, that universities have to find that themselves. And I think that is not necessarily within one institution, but maybe collectively. And I think there are opportunities in sector groupings and in, in um, you know, kind of other fora for a richer, a richer conversation about the role of the universities in in australia for the next 20 30 40 years however long we're going to look at it i think in the uk context there are more organizations that provide that convening and there is a greater sense a greater desire for the discussion about the role of universities and you also have a more diverse sector in terms of institution types you actually have greater opportunities for experimentation than than i think are are sort of naturally present or sort of currently present here in australia so i would um I would say I think we're missing here that space for for the exploration of 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 the future. Um, I I'm skeptical to whether 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 anyone is going to take up my challenge. Oh, well, um, okay. So I, here's your here's your opportunity to give to give them uh, you know at least one starting point. I've got some amazing news for you. Um, the uh, university council has just completed its search process and it's appointed you vice chancellor starting uh, in eight weeks time. Um, if you're gonna change one thing, you've got all the capital, sort of political capital that you need at, you know, at a university, what, what, would, you, what would you say would be this, the, the single thing that, that, that a vice chancellor could do to change the, change the conversation or change the culture, change the, change the framing of the way the sort of the habits of a university and the way it works right now. I know that's a little bit left field, um, but. I would wake up in the morning and I would spend 80% of my day trying to make my university the best place in the world for people to do their work. And I would help people find their joy in their work because I think that is fundamental. I think that is a, for me, is an absolute baseline component of whether we'll get good research and whether actually we'll develop good products that students want to, to deliver, to, 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 to receive and, and whether we can deliver them well and whether we can have actually impact on our communities. And I think that is, for me, the central premise because that would be, I think, the things within my control and I would try in doing so to demonstrate the value of that approach for the sector. I think it's an experiment worth taking. Um, yeah. And in doing so, I also think in terms of the, the broader reform agenda, I think I'll earn more latitude for reform if people understand that I am doing so genuinely caring about the success of each and every individual in the community. And then if I earn a bit of latitude, to, to get more financial efficiency, to, to introduce the redistribution. And I think I would demonstrate that for the sector. That's what I would do. And that, and that word latitude almost sounds like a, 
synonym for trust, as in if you can earn their trust, but if you can put trust back into the culture at the institution, is that what you're, you're saying, really? I, that's, I would have, particularly an incoming vice chancellor, building trust is really hard. And in doing so, that means authenticity. It means a sort of a ground game. You know, you've got to be out there meeting everyone, being authentic, being in the moment with each and every uh, every person that you interact with. And it doesn't mean being soft. It means you've got to take hard decisions. And actually, it may well be that we can be more joyful if we close this campus or if we stop doing this uh, area of academic inquiry or we let some people go. No, I'm, I'm, I'm open to that. But in doing, but, but through a fundamental baseline of this is going to be the best place for people to work and to to get to do their best um i i don't think that solves the sector you, but back to your question i don't think that solves the sector issue but i think given that there are limited levers in terms of reshaping the sector and that's partly because there's not enough votes in higher education so it's never got the political salience that that, that other areas have i think our options are frankly to make and this is the premise of the book is to make the best of the conditions we have. And I think there's more, yeah. the better our universities can be. Yeah, I think that is a that is a that is a really good wrapping up point. I guess what I would say is um, I, I would hope that that this might become a very, a very um, certainly a, a conversation that a lot of university leaders will, will want to listen to over the, the coming weeks and months. And certainly um, I'm not sure if, if you have the capacity or who has the capacity to this, but I would really hope that this uh, this little book of yours could become a uh, a um, almost like a um, a, a read, little reading project for university chancelleries, for senates and councils. I think that that would be a a really interesting starting point um, to start the kinds of discussion that you've um, been. Uh, sharing with me today. So look, and I'd really like to just thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Uh, this has been a pleasure. Thank you, Jack. You have been listening to Studiosity's podcast, Reimagining Higher Education, candid conversations within higher education, sharing stories of leadership, change, and best practice in teaching and learning. Visit studiosity.com.